Well, as Father Aaron just mentioned, uh, we just celebrated our 47th wedding anniversary, and it's a story of God's grace and goodness to us. Um, we've, we shared a bit about how we came to know Jesus. It was on the college campus, and uh, I was dumped in a three-year romantic relationship, wandered into, after an all-night drinking binge, into a church and found the Lord. And then someone should have said to me, Bill, take some time off from relationships, but they didn't. And so I thought, I would love to date um, a woman who really is following Christ and, uh, and just enjoy that kind of relationship. So um, I joined, actually I was very zealous, I joined a couple Bible studies, but one of them was co-ed. I saw a girl that I thought was very attractive, I'd like to get to know her, and so to my delight, she accepted uh, my call uh, when I called her, accepted that date. Um, and so uh, we, um, I went to her sorority house to pick her up, and uh, there's a note for me on the door. It said, Dear Bill, I am so sorry that I can't go out tonight. Um, please uh, call me in the morning and I'll explain. And her name was Melanie, and she signed it Melanie. So anyway, um, I, uh, got a, I called Melanie the next morning and found out that she had gotten engaged the night before. <laughs> so It was the 1970s, she, you know, <laughs> crazy things were happening. So, so she said, but I have a roommate named Mindy that I think you would really like to meet. I didn't consider uh, Melanie a reliable source at that point, so I, I kind of blew that off. Um, the pastor who led me to Christ was discipling me, and I went uh, for a meeting with him. And towards the end of the meeting, I told him this crazy story. And uh, he said, well, why don't you ask this person out? Uh, out? And he pulled out a name uh, on a piece of paper, and it was Mindy. Uh, she'd done some child care for them and stuff. And uh, then I went to an all-male Bible study that I had joined, and the leader at the end said, um, have you ever, after sharing prayer requests, telling the zany story, he said, have you ever uh, thought about asking out Mindy Mueller? Three times, I got it, and that's how it started. So from my end, I was living in a sorority, and in a sorority, it's like, think of a huge house with like 56, 60 women. So you share everything. You share belts, shoes, purses, and extra boyfriends. So... <laughs> <laughs> Melanie said, I've got this guy I want to fix you up with. He's a, a member of the Fiji fraternity, and he's come to faith in Jesus. And I'm like, what? A guy in the Fiji fraternity has come to faith in Jesus? Like, that was an oxymoron in my mind. So I went out with him just to see if the grace of God could really save a Fiji. So we went out, but I think we had a lot of connection because we'd both come to the University of Illinois as non-Christians, joined the sorority meet, bill of fraternity, in the party scene, in the bars a lot, and then we both had this radical conversion to Jesus and really wanted to not only align our lives with Christ, but be salt and light and start having ministries with our drinking friends. So we both were doing Bible studies in our respective sorority fraternities. But I think the connection we had was just such a common story of our journey. And then we, we just like had a fantastic time spending time together. So that was kind of how we met. Whirlwind romance of 11 months. We were married, got no premarital counseling. That's why I'm passionate about it. <laughs> it it, it's the grace of God that we're together, but it was, you know, keeping Jesus at the center through all of our bumblings. <laughs> but God has been gracious, and there have been spiritual mothers and fathers in our lives throughout our life to really help us um, along the, the great times and the bumps of marriage. Uh, the topic Father Aaron has uh, given us to preach on this morning is becoming lovers in marriage. And we started this message humorously, but for many couples, it's not a humorous topic. 
Um, in fact, it can be a very painful one. Um, over the years, we've done marriage conferences and marriage counseling. We've discovered uh, that many couples experience disappointment uh, in this area of their married life. And it can also be a hard sermon for single people to hear. If you have a deep longing uh, to be married and there are seemingly no prospects, or if you're divorced or widowed, this can be a hard topic. And know that Mindy and I are mindful of your pain. Uh, we love to take a walk on the beach, Osterman Beach, where the lake is and everything. And we spent time praying for you um, as we're giving this message. You know, I agree with Bill. We're mindful that this may be a difficult message for some. But um, I just want to say to those of you who are single, would encourage you to not tune out. One thing, many of you someday will be married. And so for you to form a biblical view of sexuality and marriage is a great thing to have. Um, and second of all, I think it could even inform your dating choices, like the way you date will be different if you have a biblical perspective in mind. Um, and I think it's also helpful, I think sometimes singles can think like, oh, married people have no problems, once you get married, it's all easy. But I think it's helpful to know that as wonderful as the gift of sexuality is, it's also challenging and can be an area of difficulty. But for even those of you who are going to have a lifetime of singleness, like the Apostle Paul and Jesus, by the way, the sermon next week is on that, is on singleness. I still think it's beneficial for you to understand what your married brothers and sisters are dealing with. So the broad stroke of what we're going to be talking about um, has to do with, uh, I had to get three Ps, plan, <laughs> purpose, and some practical stuff, okay? But I want to start off by just saying that, that sex is a precious, precious gift of God that is designed to be enjoyed by a husband and wife as they deeply connect physically, emotionally, and spiritually within the secure bond of the marriage covenant. I love a quote from Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. It says, when you get married, you make a solemn covenant with your spouse. That day is a great day, and your hearts are full. But as time goes on, there's a need to rekindle the heart and renew the commitment. There must be an opportunity to recall all that the other person means to you and to give yourself anew. Sex between a husband and wife is a unique way to do that. Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place of security for vulnerability and intimacy. But though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of a covenant. It is a covenant renewing act. I love that phrase. Sex is a covenant renewing act in a marriage. But you know, our fundamental understanding of ourself is that we are made by God and that we belong to God. And God hardwired us for relationships. We often talk about how we have a God-shaped vacuum, which we do, but we also have a people-shaped vacuum. We are made for relationships with other people. Also, God put within us our sexual desires. We long to connect. We must see that sex is a gift from God. It was his idea, not ours. And so we want to begin with Genesis 2.18 and kind of unpack some of what was read today. Genesis 2.18, where we started, is really an important verse. It says it's not good for man to be alone. In the creation account in Genesis 1, each day is followed by the statement, it was good. And then when men and women are created in God's image, it was very good. What we have in Genesis 2.18 is the first, not good. 
And this is not just a marriage verse, though Eve comes into the picture. It's a statement about community. We all have a deep need for intimate relationships in single or married. We are created for community, and we need healthy relationships with the same sex and the opposite sex. A person can be fully healthy and whole without sex, but a person cannot be healthy and whole without love relationships. Solitude's a good thing, but prolonged loneliness is not God's will for any human being. So what we have in the Genesis 2 account is God brings all the animals to Adam, and it's his job to name them. So I can imagine when he saw the giraffe and the hippopotamus. I mean, what a delight. I love going to the Lincoln Park Zoo. I'm sure you do too, and just the delight of animals. But as he sees all these animals and he names all these animals, they only underscore his aloneness. At the end of the day, there's no one like him. As delightful as they are, there's no one like him. So what God causes him to do is fall into a deep sleep, while his eyes are closed and he's in a deep sleep, God takes out this rib and fashions the woman. And then when his blurry eyes open up, what does he see standing before him? He sees a naked woman. This is what the text says. And he looks at Eve and he immediately thought, oh my gosh, she's a human being like I am. She has arms and legs like I do. She has skin like I do, but her skin is so soft. And he looked at her and knew that this was the answer to his aloneness. Eve was his counterpart. She was his complementary person. She answered his aloneness. There was a sense that she was his soulmate. There was a companionship that we see there, and definitely sexual attraction. It was God who thought up sex, and it was this sexual attraction between Adam and Eve that would draw them back into one another's arms in the journey of life. Now, we have to understand that we are spiritual beings, but we are also sexual beings. God created us that way. And so to have sexual desire is part of what it means to be human. They feel good about their bodies. There's no one to compare them with. If Because Eve didn't get Glamour magazine, if her ankles were too thick and her boobs were too small, she didn't know it, you know? She didn't know it. Or Adam, if you'd said to Adam, you don't have washboard abs, he would have said, what's a washboard anyway? There's she no hasn't one... seen that yet, but anyway. No, no, no. <laughs> underneath there somewhere are washboard abs. They're there. They're underneath there somewhere, okay. I know. Anyway. But there was no one to compare them with. There was no ex-lover looking in the background like their former ex or whatever. They just stood there looking at one another with that profound sense that you are made by God. You are God's gift to me. And they, they, I want to hang there in this Genesis 2 moment for just a minute because I think it's this moment that every married couple wants to come back to, to look at your marriage partner, to be naked and unashamed and say, you are made by God. You were God's gift to me. You were the answer to my aloneness. Now, I wish we could just stay in this Genesis 2 moment, but those you know that Genesis 3 comes next. And that's when the Bible talks about the fall, when men and, men and women chose to disobey God. Sin was let loose in the world, and everything got messed up, including their sexuality. Father Aaron gave a wonderful uh, sermon about um, Adam and Eve and how they were deceived and tempted by the devil in the garden. And there were repercussions as we pick it up in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So I hope you caught this, but in Genesis 2, they're naked and unashamed. Now in Genesis 3, they're ashamed of their nakedness. Sin has been let loose in the world. They're ashamed. They're hiding from each other and from God. Their relationship with God is broken. Their relationship with each other is broken. But even their relationship with self and their own view of their body is distorted. The intrusion of sin in the world is huge. This explains why relationships are so difficult. It also explains why the beautiful gift of sex has been distorted and bent, and we see adultery, date rape, pornography, and feelings of shame about our body. But again, we don't need to leave you there. But Christ, but Christ, mm. the Redeemer came to save us and to reverse the effects of the fall. He came to forgive our sin and to restore the broken places in our lives. When Christ redeems us, he redeems every corner of our being, including our broken and distorted sexuality. One of the ways we are redeemed is by recapturing God's original intent when he gave men and women the beautiful gift of sex. Sexual connection is a wonderful aspect of the marriage relationship that both the husband and wife are meant to anticipate and enjoy to the full. There's a whole book, as many of you know, Song of Songs, in the middle of the Bible, that is a book about uh, the joyous sex, the gift of God um, that he's given men and women. I once did a sermon series and preached through that book. Within a year, we saw the nursery uh, double in size. <laughs> so there's, uh, there's different ways of doing church growth. But anyway, uh, God affirms sexual pleasure in marriage in the Song of Songs. And right in the middle of the book, in verses 4 through 16, um, the bride and the groom, they, they consummate their love in a verse, frankly, teeming with excitement. It sizzles. Employing the metaphor of a garden, the bride says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And the groom responds, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then I believe it's God who says, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Um, sexual intimacy is not always easy, but it's worth striving for in your marriage. Don't give up. Interestingly, there was a Time Magazine article in 1994, cover story of Time Magazine on sex. It was sex and marriage, surprising news for mo the most important survey since the Kinsey Report. This um, information and research has been verified by Linda Waite, also of the University of Chicago, and she has that written up in a book, The Case for Marriage. But here's, a later time. This is in the 2000s. Right. Hers is much yeah. more recent yeah. you know, research, if you want to check on that. Here's what's interesting. I think some people thought that surely the best sex is happening with young people in the hookup culture. What they found surprised them. They found that the people who reported the most satisfying sexual relationships were people who were married married 25 years, which is interesting because you think, really? These people probably don't look great in a bathing suit anymore. But I think it's, <laughs> it's the fact that there was a sense of trust, like you're going to be there for me tomorrow. And there's a safeness where you can really enjoy the gift of sex. But I just think that's such an interesting thing that even research verifies what God says in the scripture. It would be helpful for you to also understand Satan's role in all of this. Here's Satan's ploy. 
When a couple is dating, Satan will do everything he can to get the couple in bed and to connect sexually. But when the couple gets married, Satan jumps to the other side of the equation and will do whatever he can to keep the couple divided and apart. He wants to put a wedge in there. He knows that this is a powerful, beautiful gift of God. And so Satan, once you're married, wants to try to thwart that and be a wedge between you and your partner. So we wanted to kind of develop the, the God's plan for sex. Now we want to talk about purposes. And we've come upon seven of them. Um, they're in Mindy's book. Uh, the first one is pleasure that we've talked about. Uh, we experience exhilarating pleasure as we share our body with another. Naked, unashamed pleasure. God made people with body parts designed for pleasure. And we like to think of ourselves as partners in pleasure. It's a bigger thing than sex, but it's really doing the, some of the things we love to do, one of which we did yesterday, taking walks on the beach with our dog, Wrigley, and uh, just enjoying the lake and then the beautiful fall colors at this time of year. The second one is bonding. It's God's intent that the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife act as super glue. We become very attached to someone when we experience physical touch and pleasure in a loving way. Sex is so much more than joining body parts. Sex unites soul. Oxytocin is a chemical released in the body during sexual activity. And by the way, women, it's also released during childbirth and breastfeeding. It's the bonding hormone. There's another one, vasopressin, that's a chemical released in men when they're aroused. But it's interesting how God, even in our physiological makeup, made it so that there would be a bonding when you have a sexual relationship with someone. Third one is creation of new life. Sometimes wonderfully sexual intercourse results in pregnancy and the overflow of the love of a man and woman have, have for one another spills out and pours into the life of a baby. It was frankly an amazing experience for me to be there for the birth of each of my four children. And uh, now the youngest is 35. And uh, as, uh, as Father Aaron mentioned, our ninth grandfield is a grandchild is due to arrive next month. And we were looking forward to that. Fun, fun being grandparent. You it, give them back at the end of the, the day. At the end of the day, someone else keeps track of the immunization and deals with all the problems. We're just the fun ones, yeah. Number four is communication. It's interesting how in a marriage, there's so much that is communicated without words through your body. I think of even when my mother died, it was very shocking. She died suddenly, and I just was standing by her grave thinking, I don't know how I'm going to go on. Bill came up, slipped his hand in mine, and just held my hand, and which he didn't say a word, but I knew with his hand that he was saying, I know your pain, I feel your pain too, I miss your mother, but we're going to walk through this together. So many times we've had poignant moments in our relationship, wordless, but just with our bodies. But sexual intercourse is a wordless way of saying, I love you, I'm giving myself to you. It's a deeper than words message to communicate to another. As we channel our passions to the other, we celebrate who they are and our delight to be in union with them. To be naked with a marriage partner is a wordless declaration of honesty, trust, and self-giving. A fifth thing is transformation. I don't know about you, but my basic bent is towards self-centeredness. And sex pulls us out of our self-centeredness and self-absorption, maybe, to unite us with another person. Sexual love allows us to practice mutual submission where the desire and pleasures of another become as important to us as our own. Number six is emotional release. As human beings, we have all these pent-up emotions. 
But the sexual experience provides an outlet to pour out all that is pent up and bottled up in our emotions. Reaching orgasms releases the tension that's been building up. And then seventh, um, it's a reflection of a higher desire, our desire for God. Lisa McMinn, um, in a book, mentions sex is a spiritual metaphor for our consummate longing for God. And sex is a sacrament. Um, it is doxological, if you will, bringing glory to God through the two becoming one. Again, to quote Tim Keller, who's written so wonderfully in this area, it is the analogy of the joyous self-giving and pleasure of love within the life of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in a relationship of glorious devotion to each other, pouring love and joy into one another continually. Sex is supposed to be wonderful because it mirrors the joy of relationship in the Trinity and because it points to the eternal ecstasy of soul that we will have in heaven in our loving relationship with God and one another. Bill and I really believe that a beautiful, healthy sexual relationship is really a byproduct of emotional intimacy. Most books, if you go to a bookstore and want to get a book on sexuality, it's about the physical side of sex, uh, different techniques or whatever. That's all physical. But there's a tremendous need for couples, especially engaging in heart-to-heart -heart conversations, to have those precious times where you really connect emotionally and spiritually. Um, but also sometimes there's conflict that needs to be resolved. If you have conflict, the first place it shows up is in the bedroom. It also may be that couples will need to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Oftentimes there's need for confession, repentance, and asking for forgiveness. But emotional intimacy is really necessary for sexual connection. And sexual passion is a wonderful gift of God that is a reflection of his passionate love for us. There's a wonderful passage in Proverbs chapter 5, 15 through 20. And in a world where there are many sexual enticements, this text is a call to channel all your passion into your marriage partner. In Proverbs 5, 18 through 20, another sizzling passage, the husband is encouraged to rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. Quite a verse. Where else in Scripture do you know where you have a command to be intoxicated? Now, it's in a certain way, but it's a call to passion. Sex is also a beautiful expression of self-giving and mutual serving. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Uh, Father Aaron uh, taught from that book uh, from 1 Corinthians 6 recently. But um, he's quoting erroneous views at the beginning that the Corinthians have. Paul is quoting. Just to Paul, clarify. what did I say? Well, I just don't want you to think it's Father Aaron. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> no, thank Paul, you for the Paul, correction. Yeah, just, just to clarify, Paul has erroneous views. He's correcting erroneous Got it. Yeah. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, um, and he quotes them, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But then Paul says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time 
that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, not to be vulnerable to other kinds of passions. It's hard to fathom what a radical statement this was. You have to remember, this was a culture where women did not vote. Women did not own property. They had almost no authority, and yet they have equal authority in the bedroom. They have authority over their husband's body. Their bodies belong to one another. They're both called to give themselves to one another. Implicit in this is the idea that they both have sexual desires and needs. It's important to point out that sometimes this verse has been misused, almost always by men, to demand sex from their wives. I have authority over your body. I have the right to have sex. For the Christian, sex is an act of self-giving, not demanding one's rights. What the text is saying is that both husband and wife need to welcome each other's sexual desires, and if either is saying no to their partner on a consistent basis, the couple needs to take responsibility to get help to find out what's going on. It's easy to pin the entire blame on your spouse. A prolonged deprivation of sex in a marriage relationship is not God's will and is evidence that something's wrong and needs God's healing touch. The fact is, uh, sexual satisfaction can be a hard thing to achieve in marriage. In my doctoral work, I have a doctor of ministry of marriage and family counseling. I got 174 couples at Park Community Church, where I was serving at the time, uh, to participate in doing a couple checkup inventory of the relationship. And um, when I got the results back, I got the aggregate results, uh, what, what I saw uh, was that it didn't surprise me that the biggest struggle that couples reported was conflict resolution. I was surprised by the second one. Uh, the next biggest struggle um, was sexual fulfillment. And so if there's a struggle there, you're certainly not alone. When Bill and I have done marriage seminars, we've had people sitting at tables and we've said to them, okay, we want you guys to talk around the table. What do you think are the barriers to sexual relationship in marriage? Like think not only about your own life, but your friends that you know. Like you're the researcher. What are the barriers to sexual fulfillment in, in marriage? The first one always is busy lives. In the city of Chicago, the pace and pressure of life can be frantic and couples are always struggling to find work-life balance. And so that's one of the biggies. Second one, Mindy already mentioned, is unresolved conflict. It'll always show up in bed. Uh, the scripture says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Um, we're not very good late at night resolving conflict. So I think it's a 24-hour rule. Of, otherwise, people in Alaska in the summertime have a great advantage on all of us. Uh, <laughs> But, um, but it's to keep short accounts and to make sure we're resolving conflict so that that isn't a hindrance in our relationship. The third barrier is mismatched appetites. Think just for a minute about the food analogy. Imagine that your partner and you have to eat the same food at the same time in the same proportions. That would be really difficult. Bill loves cauliflower. I hate cauliflower. I love yogurt. Bill hates yogurt. So, but I mean, it's sort of the same. Like one of the challenges is getting your sexual appetite matched up with your spouse's because all appetites tend to be different. Another huge barrier is fatigue and especially um, exhaustion and depression. If someone is depressed, that really plummets their sexual desire. Another one is performance anxiety. There can be that feeling of, I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. We look at the media, we look at movies, and we go, 
I'm not as pretty as she is. I'm not as good as she is. And we can have these feelings of insecurity that can shut us down. We can also have a negative view of sex that could come from our family, from church, which it shouldn't be, but it could be, but also damaging relationships. If someone has been sexually abused, it's so hard to see sex as a beautiful gift from God. I have a chapter in my book on that. I've worked with so many people, and Bill has too, who both men and women who've been sexually abused, but through the healing power of Christ, have been able to be touched and healed and have a beautiful sexual relationship when they are married. Another one that's often mentioned is the inability to forgive your partner's sin or inability to overcome one's own guilt and shame over the past, past relationships, whatever. And then a biggie, um, especially for men but not exclusively, is pornography, or there can also be chat room involvement. And energy is directed outside the relationship to someone else. It can also be a flight away from real relationships with a real person into a fantasy world that really isn't what a marriage is all about, but it's a way of kind of numbing one's pain. An emotional or physically adulterous affair can be a biggie, and as I've done counseling, uh, there's a lot of emotional affairs that end up going physical, and people just aren't dealing with it, either texting a fellow employee constantly or whatever. And then finally, number 10, children. There's nothing like a kid at the end of the hall with an ear infection to be a buzzkill on your sex life. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to pull off a great sex life when you have children. So some practical. We did the plan, the purpose, practical uh, tips toward growing in sexual intimacy. One thing is, is realizing that you have a lifetime to learn how to be partners in pleasure. Um, if, it, if, if any couple is honest, they're going to say there's been some frustrating experiences, okay experiences, and then amazing, wonderful experiences. And uh, that's normal. Um, you have a lifetime to learn how to become partners in pleasure. And, and uh, contrary to some people's opinion, doesn't have to fade with time. Uh, like an aged fine wine, you get better over the years. The next one is enjoy sex spontaneously, but also plan for it. Save some time and energy. If we just give our partner leftovers, you can fly through the week and realize, oh my gosh, we've never connected. Let's make some time. I mean, it's not too crazy to even look ahead at your calendar and say, wow, we've got so many things going on so many nights, but wait a minute, Tuesday night we're both home. Let's put Tuesday night, let's set that aside as a night to really connect with each other, save some of our energy so that we have something to bring to that relationship at that time. That may sound unromantic, but it also can be romantic if you anticipate that on your calendar and you look forward to it. Another one is realize that sex does not start in the bedroom. It often starts with thoughtfulness, kindness, um, a complimentary word, maybe an act of service where somebody notices something. Um, but it's building in this whole thing of loving each other well and realizing that it doesn't start in the bedroom. It's a good idea to know your love language. You're probably uh, familiar with the five love languages, but, um, but Mindy's is acts of service. So I find her a lot more interested if I take out the garbage. Um, <laughs> mine is words of affirmation, and that is something that draws me. But um, the other thing is that... Um, it's important to affirm um, each other's attractiveness. Um, and I think even more important as time goes by, um, when Mindy fell in love with me, she really 
um, really talked a lot about the wonderful head of hair I had. And at the beginning, it did. This is 1970, come down to my shoulders. But whatever the case, um, that's not uh, happening anymore. Uh, the, Lord the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But, uh, but anyway, uh, it's important to do this. And it's interesting, if you read the Song of Songs, chapters are devoted to this, uh, affirming the other person's physical appearance. And then learn how to give a signal of interest. Um, we've shared, uh, some of you have been in retreat and know this, <laughs> we've shared that we, we uh, light a candle. Uh, you can't believe how many candles we receive from people after mentioning that. But anyway, um, whatever, it's important to learn to give a signal of interest. And then lastly, uh, make it your highest aim uh, to bring pleasure to your mate. It's a reflection of the gospel, which delivers us from um, self-centeredness or self-gratification to really bring in pleasure to the other. So, as we land this plane, just very seriously, if there ever was a place where grace and patience are needed, it's in a couple's sexual relationship. We're broken people. We can't expect perfection from our mates. What we can't expect is honesty and the commitment to love one another well. It's a vulnerable thing to give oneself to another. As Bill said, this is a place where we really need the healing and redemptive power of the gospel, and that's what gives us hope. We have seen lives transformed, broken places healed. God has the amazing ability to heal the broken places in our life. Christ the Redeemer is redeeming us in all aspects of our being, including our sexuality. You know, Bill and I like to think of our marriage and your marriages too as a living parable to a watching world. When uh, someone sees a lifetime of love, people that have stayed together despite their imperfections, it speaks to a watching world that God is unconditionally loving towards us. We often take walks in our neighborhood. We know a ton of our neighbors were always outside with our dog or whatever, but we often have people in our neighborhood say to us, how long have you guys been married? And we say, 47 years. They're like, you guys love each other. Like I see you walking down the street holding hands. I see you on the front porch with your dog having breakfast, laughing and talking. How is it that you have stayed loving each other all these years. And I always say, do you want an honest answer? I'll give you an honest answer if you really want an honest answer. They say, yeah, I really want an honest answer. It's God at the center of our lives. As the love of Christ pours into me, I'm able to give that to Bill. We would not be married today without Christ. We have a lot of brokenness, a lot of divorces in our family. It's God in Christ that has held us together. But I would encourage you guys to just think of your marriage as a living parable to a watching world. It's hope. I'm just, we're going to close by something I wrote, Bill. This was a Valentine's thing I wrote to Bill. Dear Bill, we often joke about our aging bodies, your baldness, the spider veins on my legs, and the extra flesh we both carry around our waistline. But over the years in our marriage, I've come to see our bodies with new eyes. There's a beauty that comes from weaving two lives together and having a shared history. Our history together is literally written on our bodies. The lines on your face mark times of laughter, times of tears, and your depressions that we have walked through together. The scars on your knees remind us of your knee replacement surgery and the joy we had when we could once again take our dog to the beach. My spider veins that occurred during pregnancy are vivid markers that God has blessed us with four amazing children. My old and worn out hands speak of household project, the brick patio I laid, gardening, refinishing furniture, 
all efforts to create a home for you and the kids. You have lost hair, but you have gained wisdom and humility. I have lost my once trim waistline, but I have gained a gentle spirit and a heart of compassion. I love your soul, but I also love your body. You are more attractive to me today than you were on the day we were married. Love always, your partner in pleasure, Mindy. Should we pray? Yeah. Lord, I want to thank you. Lord, I want to thank you for this opportunity to talk about your grace and goodness. And um, I don't know how this uh, has impacted uh, various people here, but I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would minister as you uh, perfectly and, uh, can do to the hearts of each person here. Lord, we thank you that you are the author of love relationships. We thank you that you are our designer and our maker. I pray your blessing on each person that's here in Christ's name. Amen.